0: Get ready to enjoy an earful of auditory indulgence as you explore Tom Moon's book, 1000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, presented in cooperation with Workman Publishing.
1: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 1000 Recordings Podcast, number 11. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and with me, as always, every week, the harrowing Mitchell Davis.
2: Hello, how's everybody doing?
1: Good, man, you have a, uh, we just had Thanksgiving and uh, you had Thanksgiving and how was it?
2: Oh, it was good, it was good. I, I just love sitting with family and, and, and talking and laughing and, and just the time to reflect and be grateful. You know, obviously these are these are times and days where people, you know, don't a lot of times have a lot to be thankful for, you know so whenever i can I can sit down and and be with family, especially be with family and not be irritated by family, which i know that that can be an issue too with you know holiday gatherings <laughs> it it's always a good thing you know? yeah
1: yeah yeah so. yeah and uh do you want to say the name of your father in law
2: oh yeah, um my wife's father, his name is suleiman hey suleiman how you doing
1: so that's that um, i think that's one of the most awesome names ever. Yeah. yeah, he's an S- awesome Sulemon.
2: guy. He's a and whenever whenever you see Suleiman, his his greeting is peace and blessings every every time he sees you. Every time I, I've never been able to face him and and say hello without getting yeah. peace and blessings back. You know, it's it's always sometimes I mean for some people it's kind of weird like you know what's what's that all about? But I mean that's <laughs> that's just his style. You know, he always peace and blessings.
1: Yeah, you know? yeah, that's awesome. And and I mean to be named after uh, Suleiman the Great. He was Ottoman Empire. Is that right?
2: Yeah, you got me. I, I have no clue. <laughs> yeah, I think he was the great
1: leader of the Ottoman Empire. Anyway, but that's yeah, man. That's an awesome name. So um, yeah, we, we both had great uh, Thanksgivings, and and we hope that all of you listeners out there did as well. Um, and we're going to continue um, with our uh, with our journey through Tom Moon's book 1000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die and this is another episode with a lot of classical music on it and it's kind of like the Bach episode that we did except this time we have three albums of Bella Bartok the music of Bella Bartok the great uh, early 20th century Hungarian Bella Bartok Uh, then we have uh, an album of Vivaldi uh, of some of Vivaldi's vocal music sung by amazing Italian mezzo-soprano Cicilia Bartoli. Um, Then we're going to end with Count Basie and his orchestra and their complete Decca recordings from, oh, I'd say the 1930s and 40s. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's about right. (laughs) Uh, um, So really cool stuff this week. Uh, Almost all of it instrumental, which is... (laughs) Kind of unusual, except for the Bartoli album. It's all instrumental music. Yeah. Um. So let's go ahead and start with Bartok, um, and just a a little bit of background about Bartok. He was born, like I said, in Hungary, eighteen eighty one. Died in New York City in nineteen forty five. He was among the many, many artists and musicians and conductors and composers that all emigrated to United States between world war one and world war two. And they were all just trying to escape (laughs) basically. Um, you know, some were trying to escape the Nazis in Bartok's case. He was trying to escape the, the Soviets, um, (laughs) who had essentially taken over the government of his country. And, you know, they basically took all of Eastern Europe at that time. And, um, He uh, eventually came to New New York City reluctantly. Um, And uh, Bartok was not just known as a composer. He was a pianist, you know, virtuoso pianist that started, you know, from very, very young age. And he was one of the first. This is important in Bartok when you're talking about Bartok. He was one of the very first ethnomusicologists. And um, this has spun, you know, a whole field of research. I mean, you can go now and get degrees in ethnomusicology, mm. but, uh, what Bartok did essentially was he went around the countryside in Eastern Europe and all, all different Eastern European countries with a very early portable recording machine. It was like a, a wax cylinder machine, basically.
2: I think they, then they call it like a gramophone of some
1: sort. This or? was even before the gramophone. This was, uh, um, wow the The uh, invention by Thomas Edison that was, um, it was a wax cylinder that that you recorded on, and, and he it, just
2: went from place to place, you know, tasting whatever music style they had and and just carried it along with it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So he went to all the villages and the small towns and he recorded all the folk music. He recorded all the people singing and playing their own music, and then what he would do is he would take these recordings back and then he would transcribe everything into music notation. And so in that way he was researching this music, you know, this peasant music or whatever, you know, music of the people that would not have normally been preserved, you know, cause it was all oral tradition, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't written down. It wasn't recorded. Um, and then he started to, <laughs> do you hear my cat?
2: Yeah, somebody's not happy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, she's she's very happy. She makes those noises when she um, she gets her ball in her mouth and she's all proud of it, and she walks around with the ball in her mouth and making those noises. But oh, okay, yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, he uh, eventually started to work this music into his own music, and so okay. his own music became infused with this, uh, you know, peasant music. This this style this gypsy music you know whatever you want to call it Uh, um and uh this you know you know it ties into what was going on at the time in music this this nationalist movement where you know all these composers were trying to find their own national identities and you can see them all doing this you know in in finland and in spain and in france and then you know all over the place they're starting to um and even in america you know they're starting to try to uh Compose a music that's that's theirs that's their of their own nation, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, so Bartok uh, started to do this and started to weave this stuff into his music, and you can really really hear this on the first album that we're going to hear, uh, which is the Bartok um, the Six String Quartets by the Takas Quartet, um, released in 1998. And I I, I need to mention that if you guys go out and look for this uh, CD online or in a store, uh, the name of the quartet is misspelled. Um, it, in the book, it's spelled T-A-K-A-C, and there's supposed to be an S on the end of that, so T-A-K-A-C-S, Takas. Um, just a note for so- <laughs> for somebody who wants to go get it. But mm-hmm. um, uh, we're going to start with his string quartet, number four. So these are all, you know, really big, long pieces, multi-movement pieces. Um, This piece is in five movements, and we're going to listen to an excerpt from the fifth movement, the Allegro Molto movement. Um, And, yeah, I'm just, I'm so glad that Tom Moon chose this particular album because I've had this album since it came out, and um i love bartok let me say and I, I love these quartets and i've heard many interpretations of these quartets and this is the best album i've ever heard of these quartets uh, i've heard other uh prominent oh, god
2: <laughs> <laughs> hey man, it, it's cool i'm sure we have a lot of cat lovers so whatever
1: she's just she just wants to be part of the podcast that's that's all you know there you go yeah um but uh i've heard other quartets you know play these like uh, emerson quartet juilliard quartet other quartets and those recordings always seem to me to be a little bit too refined a little bit almost too polite if that makes sense Mm. um you know because you can't you can't play a bartok quartet like you'd play a mozart quartet i mean it just doesn't work you know mm-hmm. so i mean this uh this quartet just has this right balance of precision with this kind of gypsy spirit of abandon you know like th- they're i don't know they just got the right energy and and it's just yeah great. Lo-
2: lots of energy uh i would say you know adventurous energy i mean the, the one piece that we we were kind of talking about before we came on um I think it's uh, string quartet number four uh it, it's it's crazy I mean it, it's it's really it's really good but I mean and going back to the whole the whole harrowing thing I mean it, it's it's almost as if you know it's like a movie score. To like a like a Hitchcock movie or something the the part that I heard and yeah I mean, yeah yeah I mean like I, I I can just see someone being chased around the house with a knife you know just just screaming and hollering I mean it it's a it's a great piece I mean you know it invokes you know kind of like a nervous tension about you know your your emotions when you listen to it
1: yeah yeah but it's interesting because you know this this quartet was written in 1928 so this uh, really predates uh, all that stuff you know what I mean mm-hmm. and, and when I hear it, it it sounds to my ears like like heavy metal that's what it sounds like mm-hmm. to me you know but this is you know um, what 50 years before a lot of that. He- heavy metal yeah um, so yeah it's a, just a really cool piece uh, lots of energy lots of intensity and uh yeah, you want to just check this out?
2: Oh yeah, let's let's listen, please. All right,
1: all right. So here's a, an excerpt from Bella Bartok, his String Quartet Number Four, the Fifth Movement, Allegro Molto. <laughs> And we just heard Bella Bartok's string quartet number four. And we're going to move on to his string quartet number three. Um, I'm sorry, string quartet number five, third movement, um, Scherzo. This uh, piece was written in 1934. And uh, it's kind of interesting, you know, on this show that we have this Bartok stuff and we have the bassy stuff because essentially. All this music, all this Bartok music, and all the Count Basie music that we're going to listen to—this was all going on at the same time. Wow, uh, kind of inter- Yeah, kind of interesting to think about. You know, um, this is concurrent stuff—is going on exactly the same time.
2: Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't even realize that.
1: Yeah, um, but yeah, this this movement—I um, don't know—I like this movement because well, uh, scherzo. The word scherzo. Um, actually means joke in Italian, um, and Beethoven was the really the the first one who was famous for writing these scherzo movements, and these just mean um, movements that are a little more lighthearted, a little more free, a little more full of twists and turns and things that are unexpected, that that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, this is this kind of I don't know, just shows to me the more lighthearted side of Bartok, there's a lot of yeah. uh, pizzicato strings in here where he has the, the strings, you know, being plucked with, with the players have plucked the strings with their fingers instead of bowing them. And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, a lot of the Bartok string quartet music is really intense and dark. And so, you know, I thought this was a good contrast.
2: But, yeah, it's definitely not near as intense as, as the piece prior to this. Yeah. Uh, and I again, when I listen to it, this... It just predates so much that could be considered film score type music. I mean, whenever I hear it, that's that's the first thing that comes to my mind. It's just a, a, a very good score to a movie, you know, mostly like a suspense type movie or, or dramatic movie. But I, I mean, that's the first thing that I I thought when I listened to it.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, this this music, especially this era, is music that film composers... Of today and of you know our lifetime have really modeled their music after and I know a lot of times like if you take Star Wars for example um, when uh, John Williams was called in to do that score George Lucas had and this is fairly common he had a uh, what you'd call maybe a temporary soundtrack over where George Lucas just took these existing classical pieces and stuck them in the film just as like placeholders. Uh-huh. But also he wanted to tell John Williams, you know, this is kind of what I want here. And this is kind of what I want here. And so, you know, a lot of this music, you know, and a lot of film music, even the stuff from star Wars, you can go back to earlier pieces in here. Um, great similarities, you know, um, to and almost stuff that's almost verbatim. I mean, there's like a a piece in Star Wars um, that's almost taken verbatim from the second part of the Rite of Spring. It's almost it's it's almost the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can you know go through all these pieces, you know these these older pieces and hear a lot. Uh, it's you know. Uh, no wonder that that people hear film score music because as that this is really where film scores come from. Is all this all this stuff? But
2: yeah, and I, uh, that's that's that seems like a you know it'd be pretty apparent now that you you explain it like that, where they just they just wanted to have an idea, you know, of, of how they wanted to set it up, and not necessarily copy, but maybe you know, you know, if if you're not right, right, it's familiar, you would know that they they may have even, you know, copied something almost exactly, you
1: know? Yeah. And and I'm just, I'm not saying, uh, I'm not saying that the film composers are a bunch of copycats. That's not what I'm saying at all. I mean, um, film music is, you know, it's there to, to serve a purpose. And if ultimately, you know, a film composer has to give the director what they want. But um, I mean, as far as star Wars is concerned, you know, just the opening, music to star wars is you know that's one of the greatest melodies of the 20th century yeah it's one of the most recognizable yeah i mean so i, I take nothing away from john williams or any other film composer but um but yeah 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 that's 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 kind of how it works so i don't anything else you want to say about this before we play it
2: no and, and like you were saying, i mean everybody has to get inspiration from, from somewhere i mean oh yeah you know, i mean that that's You know, from from the best to the the most mediocre of of whatever, you know, we all need inspiration. So, you know, I I look for it every day, you know, and and just little things that I do. So,
1: yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, let's check this out. This is Bella Bartok string quartet number five, the third movement, the scherzo. And we just heard the Scherzo from Bella Bartok's String Quartet Number 5. And we're going to move on to the next album of Bella Bartok. This album is the uh, two, piece, two orchestral pieces of Bartok. The Concerto for Orchestra and his Music for Strings, Percussion, and Celesta. Um, this is the Chicago Symphony Recording. Uh, conducted by Fritz Reiner, who incidentally, F- Fritz Reiner was a student of Bartok at the back at the Royal Conservatory of Music in Hungary when he was young, before he came to the United States and became a famous conductor. Um, and this is one of the most famous recordings of this piece, of these two pieces. Um, originally released in 1958, uh, it's one of those kind of seminal recordings. Um, there's a, lots of recordings of these pieces out there. Uh, But this is a great one. Uh, Another, uh, just for for the listeners out there, another great recording that I really like of the concerto for orchestra and the music for strings, percussion, and a More recent recording uh, would be one by the Los Angeles Philharmonic, conducted by Esa-Pekka Salonen. It's a really really great recording. But this is this is also a great recording of it. And uh, we're going to start with the concerto for orchestra. And what did you think of this piece?
2: Well, the, the first thing that, that I, I liked about this piece was, you know, as far as concertos for like a full orchestra go, I mean, I, I haven't listened to a lot, you know, but I mean, I love this. I, I love there's some flute parts in here that are just great. I mean, that that's one thing that stood out to me. Uh, a lot of the arrangements for the flute and and definitely the horns too, where you hear like French horn. There's it, something about French horn that I just love. Oh just, yeah, it's just a beautiful sound. And um, you know, I, I again, classical music is definitely not my my strong suit. But when I listen to a full orchestra, a full on orchestra, and and everybody kind of gets their their say, so to speak, and you and you just hear a variety of things, you know on a piece like this i mean it's it's just amazing i i i really love it it was the first time i was ever exposed to this piece and and i liked it a lot it's at times it can be just really subtle like like he's tiptoeing and then it and then it gets very dramatic um you know but uh yeah for the first time that I, I heard it i mean i was very impressed
1: yeah yeah and um this piece uh well this movement is called uh where it's titled Gioco della Coppe, which means Game of Pairs, is what it means. Um, and I just have to talk about how Bartok just put this uh, music together because it's just cool and it's just new. Um, well, it was new for the time, you know. Yeah. Um, this whole concept of a concerto for orchestra. So we've listened to concertos on this on this show before from other composers. The concertos always uh, been a piece with a soloist. Um, and then an orchestra kind of accompanying that soloist. So it could be, the, it could be a piano soloist or anything, violin soloist, guitar soloist, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a concerto for the entire orchestra. So it, it showcased the orchestra as a whole in the, in every player in the orchestra. This was a really new, radically new concept when, uh, Bartok wrote this piece, uh, which he wrote in 1936. And, um, the way that Bartok the way this movement works, um, like I said, it's called the game of pairs. So it starts with, um, all these pairs of wind instruments playing these melodies, uh, in parallel motion. So, so both instruments are playing the same melody, just a certain interval apart. Right. And they're just Mm -hmm. playing it all in parallel motion, which, um, Yeah, so so it kind of starts like this. It starts with bassoon, two bassoons, playing a minor sixth apart. Then it goes to two oboes playing minor third apart. Then two clarinets playing a minor second apart. Um, Sorry, minor seventh apart. Uh, Two flutes then come in playing a perfect fifth apart. Then two muted trumpets playing major second apart. Uh, Then this is followed by a corral for the brass instruments, a really beautiful corral for them. And then the piece ends with these pairs of winds again. Um, And uh, yeah, I'm in this, I don't know. I'm going to try to get the beginning of the brass corral so you guys can hear that. Um, So I'm not sure I'll be able to get like all these entrances in and the corral, but I'll get as much of it as I can in there. But, yeah I don't know just it's just a real novel piece a real novel way to put a piece together and uh um, yeah
2: in in the book they I know they were they were kind of talking about um, different people nowadays or of this era that they were comparing him to, and I mean the, Frank Zappa for sure, I mean just someone who would who would put a lot of musicians together. And put pieces on them that were, you know, it, it was almost like like a precision where everybody had to really know what they were doing, you know. Yeah. And I mean, it was it wasn't ever muddled. It was it was very precise. And also, too, I think that somebody um, I, I read somewhere they were comparing them to Prince and James Brown too, where they they kind of had you know ideas like that where you know they. Stuff would be just on a, a dead stop at sometimes where it, the musical arrangements, you know, you, you had to really, really be on your stuff, you know, to do it. But when it worked, it was so good, you know, the the arrangements, the way they were. And I, I think I, I could definitely see a lot of what they do uh, along with what he's doing. Uh, not exactly the same, but but some of the same ideas, you know, to, to put music together in a very unconventional way where... Yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it can be so grand, but so together, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I can definitely hear, um, I've, I, yeah, I totally see what you're saying. I've, I've never heard the, um, Prince and James Brown, uh, comparisons, but I can totally see what you're saying. Um, and I know for a fact that, um, Zappa was really influenced by Bartok's music. Um, so, Yeah, I don't know. Let's just check this out. Cool. Um, This is excerpt from Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra, The Second Movement, Gioco della Coppi. And we just heard the second movement of Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra. And we're going to move on to his Music for Strings, Percussion, and Celesta. So this is a piece written for essentially an orchestra without any kind of wind instrument or brass instrument. Um, and so, you know, previously we heard this this uh, movement from Concerto for Orchestra that was kind of focusing on the winds and the brass. This piece is focusing on string instruments. Um, which he includes harp in that that, you know, name strings. He includes harp. So there's you know the, all the violins, cellos, violas and basses and harp. Uh, percussion, which is the percussion instruments plus piano. So Bartok puts the piano into the percussion which essentially a piano is a percussion instrument. Um, and celesta, which is like a little keyboard instrument um, that kind of sounds like bells. You'll hear celesta a lot in like the Nutcracker Suite and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so this orchestra um, and this fourth movement um, that we're going to hear from this piece uh, is you can he- really hear the folk element in this it just sounds like kind of a lively folk dance so really exciting um kind of full of joy there's all these like strumming effects in the strings so bartok has um the violins and, and all these instruments and the cellos strumming their instruments kind of like guitars um yeah what do you think of this i
2: definitely could hear more of the i guess the pizzicato sound like you were talking about before where you hear the the plucking of the violin i mean i love that i mean um and i i mean i, I love the piece as a whole you know just uh really nice focus on a variety of which you would like like you said string instruments and um you know and, and and listening for you know things like i i can't remember what what was what did you just say the
1: the
2: the instrument that you would hear in a nutcracker what mm. is that called
1: again celesta
2: the celesta. i mean you know Listening for things like that, and you're like, I, I really not sure what that is, but, but I mean, you know, that's another thing about this piece that's really fun is, you know, just discovering, you know, new sounds and in strings. I mean, you know, obviously there are some things that you're more fam- familiar with than others. If, you know, you know violin and you know cello or, or whatever at harp, but, um, you know, hearing things like that, you know, and and discovering you know new sounds that that was fun.
1: Yeah, yeah. And another thing that Bartok did with this is that he split the string orchestra into two separate string orchestras and then he moved them to the like far sides of the stage to so the far right and the far left um, and th- this is referred to as he, he placed these antiphonally. So what this means is like you get like a stereo effect. So you have like the two different string ensembles. You can't really hear it in the recording but um, in in a live setting, you would hear it where you'd have them playing off of each other, you know, like stereophonically, bouncing back and forth from right to left, and yeah, I don't know, mm. just thought it was cool, but yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, let's just listen to it. All right. Cool. So uh, this is the final movement from Bartok's Music for Strings, Percussion, and Celesta. <laughs> And we just heard Music for Strings, Percussion, and Celesta by Bella Bartok. And we're going to move on to our last CD of Bartok, his Piano Concerto Number no. 3. This is performed by the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra with Annie Fisher at the piano. Uh, so we're going to start off with a second movement. The second movement is titled Adagio Religioso, uh, which really means just sort of slow in a religious way. Manner or with a religious feeling, you know this kind of thing. Um, and this piece was one one of the things about this piece, and and the concerto for orchestra. Both uh, these were written uh, at the very end of Bartok's life um, in 1945. Uh, Bartok had contracted leukemia um, in uh, well, probably around 1940 and he was with this piece piano concerto number no. 3 he was literally on his deathbed when he wrote this piece and it wasn't 100% complete when he died um he was working on this piece which was almost finished when he died and then he another piece he was working on his concerto for viola and orchestra um he had actually completed the the viola part for that piece and then sk- some sketches for the orchestra part And kind of like Mozart's Requiem, you know, these pieces were finished by one of Bartok's students. Mm. And so we actually have these pieces, you know, they're performed, you know, a lot now. Um, But these are Bartok's final statements to the world. And he knew that they were, uh, you know, unlike Mozart, I think he um, Bartok knew he was dying and, you know, he knew he didn't have that much time left. And so he knew these were going to be his final statements, final musical statements, you know. Um, And this piece right here, Adagio Religioso, um, this is a real departure (laughs) from uh, Bartok's earlier music. Uh, It's almost neoclassical in style. It starts with these really austere string lines that are just like Achingly beautiful, um, with these plaintive sort of piano chords in between, and uh, I don't know. I think this really points to a possible new direction that Bartok might have taken had he lived. Um, And but you know, it also could have just been you know a final prayer. So you know what I mean? Yeah, that
2: that, that's what I was thinking too. It 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 sounds like just reflection. You know, like someone who they were they were ready to make peace and i mean as as sad as it seems i mean it's good that he was able seemingly to to even make the statement i mean he he could have been so that you know he was unable to to perform or compose or do anything anymore i mean some people get to the end of the line where they're, they're just not able to express themselves at all yeah yeah but it's fortunate that he he was in a sense and I mean, that's what it sounds like to me is that he he was just kind of like looking back on on, you know, I guess what you would call his legacy, you know. And that's that's what it sounds like to me on on this piece.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, well, let's just check it out. This is Bella Bartok's Piano Concerto Number 3, the second movement, Adagio Religioso. And we just heard Bella Bartok, piano concerto number three, the second movement. We're going to move on to the third movement from that piece uh, titled Allegro Vivace. This is kind of the the finale, you know, the exciting, fast, bombastic, you know, you know finale. That's a good word, the word, bombastic. <laughs> for the, yeah, for, for the piece. Um, and, uh, you know, another interesting thing about this piece is that, it, you know, it starts out how you would expect, you know, really virtuosic, fast, impressive lines in the piano, then it goes into a fugue. So, you know, we've talked about fugues before, especially in the Bach episode, and you know, this fugue that starts in the piano and then it then it continues on in the strings. This seemed to be, a, I don't know, a pattern for composers at the end of their lives. Uh, you know, Mozart did this, and Beethoven did this, and and Bartok did this. All kinds of composers did this. Kind of turned to fugue at the very ends of their lives. It's an interesting phenomenon. I, I don't know uh, exactly why um, they would do that, but I don't know. It's just kind of an interesting phenomenon. Um, but yeah, um, yeah. Like I said, this is uh, Bartok's last statement for his own instrument. You know, he was a, a virtuoso pianist himself and uh you know he, he he kind of put everything he had into this i think and what do you think of this
2: well you know like you said it i mean for lack of a better way of saying it i mean the the fugue could be just the composer's way of kind of going out with a bang
1: could be uh, yeah
2: and i mean that that's just one of those things that you know if if, if you're if you're in composing and and you're, you're doing what you're doing, sometimes I guess you don't want to be seen as someone who's just, you know, showing off or being a grandstander. But, you know, if, if you know that you're going out, it's like, you know, what are they going to say? You
1: know, I don't know. (laughs) Right. right.
2: Look at that, but, um, you know, that, that could be part of what, what was going on with the, the composers in question, you know, and, um, you know the the fugue is it just seems like just a way to to express yourself in you know the biggest and boldest way that you know how you know possibly
1: yeah 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 it could be totally and um just before we play this you know I have one little story about this piece um when I first went to music school in Austin um I can't remember what year it was i mean ninety seven or ninety eight they had this World Bartok Symposium at UT Austin. This is something that happens, I think it happens every year, but it happens in a different location around the world. So it could be somewhere here, it could be in China, could be in Europe, you know. And basically it's this um, conference gathering of all these Bartok scholars, uh, musicians who specialize in playing Bartok. It's just, you know, a huge festival of Bartok. Mm-hmm. And um, during this festival they had the guy who premiered this piece, the piano concerto number three in 1946. Wow. Uh, So he came to play this piece uh, with the UT orchestra. And of course he was really old, right? Yeah. So, so. yeah. So, so the concert starts and uh, he, you know, walks out on stage. He's this little old man kind of hunched over, can barely walk. Um, he's got a you know a person helping him to the piano and so we're thinking oh god you know like well it's very nice you know that he can come play this one last time but it's you know probably going to be terrible and all this stuff you know <laughs> um so you know he they get him sat down at the piano and and he's just sort of hunched over it and all this stuff and looks really weak and um the conductor starts and he's just sitting at the piano. And then he's just like, and just launches into this freaking piece. Like the most vivacious 18 year old you have ever seen with this amazing power and presence. We were just like, Oh my God, you know, just, <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was amazing. I mean, it was like this, this weird, uh, utter transformation. And I mean, that is just the power of music right there. mm. Was, yeah, I
2: guess you say so. So much for the old man stuff, huh? Exactly.
1: <laughs> I mean, it was just oh, it was a it was a great moment. But um, anyway, uh, let's uh, let's hear this: the third movement of the Bartok's Piano Concerto Number no. Three, the Allegro Vivace. We just heard bartok concerto number no. three uh, piano concerto number no. three allegro vivace and we're going to move on to our fourth album the vivaldi album of Cecilia bartoli and il giardino armonico that's the orchestra uh, released in 1999 um so uh, again a little bit about vivaldi um he was born in 1678, died in 1741, so roughly a contemporary of Bach, a little bit older than Bach. Um, and, um, you know, he was another one like Bach, where we talked about Bach's music was forgotten um, after Bach died and it wasn't resurrected until around 1850. Vivaldi was the same way. Um, his music was also forgotten and uh, it took longer. Vivaldi's music wasn't rediscovered until the early 20th century, and it mm. was it was because of of the rediscovery of Bach. And Bach was a huge fan of Vivaldi. and Bach made um, a lot of transcriptions and arrangements of Vivaldi's music. And that's what prompted scholars to go back and look at Vivaldi. They're like, "Well, if Bach was so interested in this guy, you know, maybe we should be too.". Um, so that's really how Vivaldi's music was rediscovered and uh, this is a cool CD for me because in our own time and in this time we really know Vivaldi for his instrumental music and his concertos uh, for violin especially Um, and we don't really know his vocal work very well but during Vivaldi's lifetime um, he was very well known for his vocal work he wrote a ton of operas that were really popular um, you know, when he was alive. and uh, all this stuff on this album is taken from operas of Vivaldi. There's you know, different arias and stuff from uh, Vivaldi's operas. Um, so the the first track we're gonna hear from this um, album is I'm gonna try to get these uh, titles right. <laughs> <laughs> is uh, Sventurata Navisela from Il Giustino. Il Giustino would have been the opera um, and the title of the aria is uh, Sventurata Navicella. Um, so, yeah, what did you think of this? Uh, first
2: of all, just Bertoli to me is, she's she's awesome. Um, you know, from just whenever I see her, I, I, I rarely ever see someone that has the the power in her voice that she has, along with the control of her voice, which to me is, you know, you you'll see a lot of people that have one or the other, but I, I, I rarely see someone who has both like she does, where she can do so many things with a, a very strong voice and and do it well. You know, where's where so many people they they may not have and I mean, just just the way her face moves and her 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 shoulders move when she's singing, and it's like, oh God, you know. I mean, I I, I imagine she she must do something, you know. Anyway, awesome yeah. piece, you know. Just really mm-hmm. really wonderful to hear her sing anything, you know. She's she's an amazing vocalist.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know exactly what you're saying. I mean, she. Um, has such power and such control of her voice um, that you know she can sing the lowest low at a, the loudest volume or the highest high at the softest volume or you know it doesn't matter where she is in her range or how loud she's singing or what she's singing she has absolute mastery I would say that would use that word absolute mastery yes, over you're her right. voice That's
2: great. A great word for for that's a great way to put it. Just I, I, the only person I can think of right off the top of my head that that that's comparative to her there's a there's a soul singer or soul jazz whatever singer named Rochelle Farrell uh, who's worked a lot with with George Duke, which you know some people kind of know George Duke just
1: oh from, from Zappa <laughs> yeah from Zappa days yeah.
2: and his contemporary style like jazz days with Stanley Clark, but Rochelle Farrell is. She reminds me somewhat of 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 Bartoli, where she she's like that. She can she can take it really really high or really really low, and and she totally has control. and And the thing with the face, that's that's another thing that you know where she almost looks like she's coming out of herself. You know, where it's it's like she it's like blinking or or like a muscle response where you know it's just. It's out of her hands; it's almost automatic, you know. Yeah. And, and sometimes you look at her and like, man, she looks totally crazy. But I, I see that in, in Rochelle Pharrell too. Anyway, um, just I, I mean, it's just <coughs> things that you rarely will ever see where somebody has that much mastery. Yeah. Over their voice.
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you brought that up about you know because when you go on YouTube and watch videos of Bartoli singing this stuff, which I I highly recommend you do, it's amazing to watch her. Sing this stuff, but um, you know you might first be struck by the faces that she makes and the yeah. cont- the contortions that her body goes through and all this stuff. And you think, God, you know, she just like you said, you know, she looks she looks crazy. But with an artist like Bartoli, everything she does is in service to the music. Yeah. So, so whatever tone. She she needs to get out of her voice or whatever, uh, emotive power or whatever she needs to get out of her voice. She not only uses her vocal cords in her throat; she uses her entire body to get uh-huh. this stuff out. Yeah. And um, and like I said, you know, everything she does is in service to the sound. You know, and yeah. uh, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't care how she looks when she's doing it. Yeah, um, it's
2: it's a, it's a means to an end. I mean, the yeah. the sacrifice of looking you know, as if she was being possessed, you know, it, like you said, it, it's all for the music. And I, I have a lot of respect for that because, you know, people that that aren't, you know, I guess would take that for granted, could not probably get past what she's doing as far as the way she looks. I mean, um, somebody else that, that comes to my mind, and, and it, it's not a vocalist, but a, a piano player, uh, uh, I think Keith Jarrett,
1: oh uh, yeah yeah yeah
2: i mean if if you ever see him play sometimes he he, he just looks like he's losing it you know well sometimes
1: but, he sounds like he's losing it because he, he makes all those weird vocalizations and stuff too when he's playing yeah
2: <laughs> yeah and, and but the music is is the thing he wants you to yeah to understand what he's trying to say by listening to the music not by what he's doing i mean because otherwise i mean if i mean you could turn the music off and just watch them i mean. You, you might fall out laughing you know but i mean the music is the thing and 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 that's that's one of the things like i said i, I just really respect about her and 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 what she she's trying to do so to speak so
1: yeah yeah so this um this excerpt we're going to hear from sventura navicella um features bartoli singing these lines in unison with the strings um and essentially what makes this music so hard and what makes it to where most vocalists could not sing this stuff is that most of these lines are really not vocal lines they're really kind of instrumental lines <clears throat> that she's singing um, <clears throat> but she's singing them with such precision it, it's just it's just amazing to hear so let's just check this out um, this is Cecilia Bartoli singing Vivaldi's Sventura Navicella And we just heard Sventura Navicella um, of Vivaldi. And we're going to move on to uh, Vivaldi's piece Tra la Folie. Uh, This is from his opera uh, (laughs) L'Olympiade. That's good. (laughs) Yeah, L'Olympiade, act two, scene five. So um, with this one, um, you can really hear just to the nth degree, kind of her, her vocal ability, um, just running just up and down, um, these lines, these virtuosic vocal lines. It, it's just amazing. So, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Anything you want to say about this one?
2: Uh, just the, the, her articulation. And that, and that's not even a word that I, I would even liking liken to singers, but her, her articulation is is another thing too, where you hear her so clearly in what she's trying to say, even if you don't speak the language that she's singing or the the whatever she's singing. Like you said, sometimes it sounds like she she's vocalizing like almost in a scat style. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and it is it's just amazing to 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 hear her, you know, put it right on the pin top. You know, so to speak, you know, as accurately as she does. I mean, just just one of the the greatest vocalists walking in the face of the earth right now.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm glad you, you you brought that up. Um, that that's a great um, word to use. And and yeah, that's that's true. Like uh, you, you'll really be able to hear it in this excerpt. Like no matter how fast she's whizzing up and down these lines, you know, a lot of singers it would just sound like a like a glissando going up and down, but she hits every single individual note just like you said right on the pin top or like a laser you know it's just like Mm -hmm. it's just right on and and right in rhythm and and just super clear and yeah so um yeah let's check this out this is tra la folie of vivaldi sung by Cecilia bartoli
3: (laughs) I'm i nostri affetti sono I will be You
1: And that was the last track from Cecilia Bartoli, and we're going to move on to our last album of the day, Count Basie and his orchestra. Their complete Decca recordings. This was released in two thousand. I'm assuming is as kind of like a box set kind of thing. Um, but these are recordings. I, I think mostly from the 1930s. Is that? Would you yeah, agree I, with I that? think
2: that's 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 pretty accurate. That's about that period. Yeah,
1: yeah, and. Um, we're going to start with um, his piece Shorty George, Um, you know, and uh, Count Basie, of course, you know, one of the greatest musicians of jazz, one of the, really one of the greatest American musicians who really was responsible for um, creating, you know, an American music, a music that was American, yeah, you know, Um, and uh, really one of, our country's uh, greatest composers really um uh so yeah anything you want to say about this um
2: so so much of of the material on this is is so good it was very hard to to pick you know just yeah. a couple of pieces and i i i think one thing too that i started to be to look beyond even what was on this this set because the he he just had so much good music. Um, I posted something on my my Facebook page a few weeks back uh, where he, uh, he 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 does a, an interpretation of all of me, and it was it was a clip that just it was so well describing what he was about. I mean, in in this piece and some other pieces where he he just knew how to swing. I mean, everybody says that you know, like you know. The, the, the swinging whatever you know of the 30s or 40s and he, he had that down to a science where he he could just be so subtle in in playing what he was playing but to have a full orchestra all on the same page you know hitting those one or two notes in yeah. bar just, just made it that more special and um I think that's that's the great legacy of of Count Basie. He didn't have to, you know, kick up a lot of dust and 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 raise a lot of hell, so to speak. He could do it very, 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 very subtle in a very cool manner, you know. And that's one of the things I think about. He he was just very cool. I mean, if you if you just watch him, the way he sat, the way he played that piano, the ring on his finger, even. <laughs> you know, yeah. down to all of that. I mean, it was it was just a very, very cool manner in which he played and the way his orchestra fell in line behind him.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but it's kind of funny too. Um my first exposure to Count Basie was um from Blazing Saddles. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> There's this scene in Blazing Saddles where you know which scene I'm talking about, right? Oh yeah, I do. I Where do. Cleavon Little first uh, becomes a sheriff, and so he's on the he's on his horse in the desert, and you know um, he's looking good, you know, in his his uh, sheriff outfit. He's sort of riding across the desert, and you hear this Count Basie music playing. I, I don't know what piece it was, and then he rides up, and and there's Count Basie and his orchestra in the middle of the desert, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Also, incidentally, I think there's one of the greatest versions of um, Cole Porter's um, I Get a Kick Out of You mm. <laughs> in that movie. Um, in the beginning, they do this sort of acapella version of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, great, <laughs> great version of that uh, song. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, we're, we're going to um, start off with this tune, Shorty George. And uh, man, the Basies band was... Um, I don't think you can find a band that can get any tighter, yeah, than this band. they're so rhythmically locked in. I mean, just it's amazing that that this many people can be that rhythmically locked into each other it's, it's yeah they
2: you you can tell they they had a great work ethic I mean, like I said, you know not a lot of you know frantic nature of what they did it was it was also very simple but it was also very together you know and uh agree with you they were very tight
1: yeah yeah um yeah and this this song shorty george is kind of you know jumping swinging um there's a great trumpet solo uh which i think is buck clayton followed by a sax solo and then after this we get to hear um Count Basie himself, on the piano, and re- this really typifies his style. It's this solo that's, you know, it's I wouldn't call it flashy, you know. It's just the right notes at the right time. You mm-hmm. know what I mean?
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, um, and and like I said, everything is rhythmically in there, in the groove, so tight. Even the solos, you know, um, it's really cool. So let me let's check this out. Um, Count Basie, uh, this is Shorty George. And we just heard Shorty George of Count Basie, and we're gonna move on to a tune called Sent for You Yesterday and Here You Come Today. Um what'd you think of this one?
2: Well, the this was like the when a few weeks back when I was I was kind of researching. This is like one of the first times that I I think I'd heard this song. Um, you know, just one of those those songs that that has like a, a really great vocal piece to it. That that runs along with what the the orchestra was doing, which you know most of the, uh, it seems like most of what they did, you know, at times was uh was instrumental unless you know they had uh, a vocal spot. And I want to say it was Lester Young. That uh, that same with Count Basie, I if if I'm remembering correctly, and I I want I want to say that he's singing on this track. I, I might be wrong. But, uh
1: yeah, yeah, I I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
2: but uh. You know, just a a a great, you know, a, another great like swinging type piece where, you know, the the orchestra is just is just all together, and and I I think another thing about Basie is the the studio versions of what they were doing were, were really great, but I I think the the appreciation comes when you see them live, and hear their pieces played live. There, there's something about basically that that when you hear the music played you know full-on with the, with the orchestra and an audience too as well it that's when you really kind of you know understand you know what what they were about and um you know i i mean the the stuff that I've, I've listened to on the the piece that we're looking at it's all so good you know there's there's not i don't think there's any live material on it but um that's that's where I think he was just so so very 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 good. You know, when, when you you have that orchestra and they're all live, it's it's just such a an amazing experience.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. And this song compared to the uh the other one that we listened to, you know, this one's a little slower, a little meaner, I would say. It has these like great growling trumpets and yeah, uh-huh. um the background and of course yeah the vocals. Um so yeah, let's let's check it out. This is Count Basie, sent for you yesterday, and here you come today. We just heard Count Basie sent for you yesterday, and here you come today, and that does it for this week's One Thousand Recordings podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, I had fun this time. Uh, oh <laughs> of, yeah. Of course, you know, talking about Bartok, talk, and um, and I don't know. I like this show. I like instrumental music, obviously. So, yeah. I, I really enjoy listening to this stuff um, this week. And if you want to send us an email. And uh, please send us an email. You can do that. Um, send it to 1000 Recordings Podcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at slash 1000rp. You can uh, go to the website, and on the website, you can find links to all the albums and everything that we play uh, if you want to get your hands on them. Uh, that website is 1000rp.blogspot.com. Uh, and you can join us on Facebook where on our Facebook page we post a lot of extra um, goodies and clips and stuff from the the music that we talk about and uh, yeah yeah so uh, oh yeah and go to iTunes and leave us some reviews so yeah for sure (laughs) thank
2: thank you for those who have left reviews we really appreciate it
1: yeah definitely Uh, and uh, next week what do we have coming up next week do you remember? I don't even remember. I have to get oh, my book out. Oh, that's
2: a good question. Uh, I know that we are coming up on, so, obviously, some more Bs. Um, oh, it's a shame I don't remember either. Um, okay,
1: I got my book. Um, you want me to go ahead? Please. <laughs> okay, so we have um, Valdemar Bastos. Um, I don't know his music at all, so that'll no, be I that'll be okay. interesting. Um, and then another one um Cuban group uh Batacumbele I think I'm saying that right Okay um, that'll, that'll
2: be that'll be a new experience for me too
1: Yeah then we have Bauhaus Yeah definitely no Bauhaus And then a couple of releases from the Beach Boys
2: Oh yeah yeah that's right I you know I I was kind of thinking about um I think Pet Sounds because it that's one of those records that it was so received in a, in a mixed way where where some people were like you know where are y'all going you know I mean it was it was not the traditional Beach Boys uh, album if I if I remember correctly yeah but I, I've heard some of the I mean I've heard some of the record I mean I like it you know so that, that should be fun
1: yeah I'm looking for that I really like the Beach Boys um I you know I grew up listening to them. My dad really loved the Beach Boys. He had the original, you know, vinyl of Pet Sounds. <laughs> okay, wow. Um and I it, it, I would put that on all the time when I was a kid and yeah, so Yeah, um, and then Bauhaus too.
2: I mean, obviously the 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 whole gothic scene, you know, is is indebted to to them. And I mean, you know, they kind of went from one band to I guess sort of Sort of like two, really three different acts. Where where Peter Murphy went solo, and and then Tones on Tail, and then Loving Rockets. Which I, I mean, I, I I like Peter Murphy a lot. His solo stuff, but man, I love Lovin' Rockets. I mean, they were just one of those bands that they had so many great records. And and, and as well. I mean, you know, very influential band. You know that that should be fun too. That's that's gonna be fun discussing. You know, you know that album. So.
1: Yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to it. Well, uh, until next week, um, yeah, we'll just get into all this stuff and uh, enjoy listening to all this stuff we talked about um, this week. <clears throat> and if you like it, go buy it <laughs> on <you> know, <laughs> online or in a record store, um, please.
2: De- definitely going to get some Bartok. I mean, the the one that you talked about, the the first one we talked about, actually, that that's a that's a great record. I, and and going back to him you know going from village to village i mean i guess he he had like a he had like a donkey that he he set his his recorder on i'm i'm just trying to imagine the looks on people's faces when he's coming into the village you know they're like what is this
1: oh yeah i mean you know most of these you know most of these people in these remote villages had never seen a device like this in their lives you know device to record sound and yeah they must have thought it was just something you know some yeah. futuristic technology and uh, you know um i i know that i read you know some of them even had superstitions about it like they would capture their voice and it was evil and oh wow. you know, they had to deal with all kinds of stuff like that but oh yeah yeah
2: let i guess it's almost like the you know the first version of a a, a very primitive boombox, if you will, where he's he's just going from place to place, and you know, in a way, I guess, you know, not really, but you know, yeah, I, I just I just picture that. And I'm like, man, that must have been that must have been something else. I mean, I I bet he saw all kinds of stuff. Anyway,
1: oh yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. I mean, if if only you know, he could have had a, like a documentary film crew with him, that would have been uh yeah, <laughs> that amazing, would have been. Cool. but right. um. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we continue our discovery on this show. And um, until next time, Mitch. Um, yeah, I'll see you and everybody else later.
2: All right, man. Good talk to you. Goodbye, everybody. Have a great week.
1: Oh, you know what? What's that? I didn't. Uh, I didn't think of an adjective for you. Oh. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I get no kick from champagne. Mere alcohol doesn't thrill me at all. So tell me, why should it be true that I get a belt? out of you some get a kick from cocaine hold it hold it what the
0: hell is that shit